You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Uh, it's Monday. That means it's Hurtel Show time again. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are across the street or around the world. Thrilled to have you back in. Hope you had a great weekend. No, we did. School's getting ready to start. Uh, we had some Friday night, high school football Friday night in a rainstorm, but it was still good to be out there. Kids are getting back to school. Days are starting to cool off a little bit. Fall's in the air. And for this August the 22nd of the year of our Lord, 2022, it's just going to keep rolling right along. And we're going to try to keep up with the headlines as best we can, but we're going to turn down the noise of the news cycle. And we're going to do that today. I'm going to talk a little bit about Liz Cheney, which we haven't been talking about because it doesn't really matter because she lost by 30 points. And I know she stands up and she's an avatar for a lot of people. And it's a big news starter. And I'm burned out on it. So we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Um, a little later on the show, we always try to end on a good note. This is a great one. Kids building beds for kids to sleep in. Great charity. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Also, if you missed it over the weekend, the latest Heard Tell podcast deep dive. Amanda Griffin's rejoined the program. We talked about this last time. She was a guest off the air. Now we got it on tape. Deep dive into Machiavelli. Not just the myths and the legends and the conspiracy theories. The real life guy whose influence stretches from Renaissance Italy all the way up through the founding fathers of the U.S., believe it or not, to one of my favorite Tupac albums, pop culture, all kinds of political implications. Uh, Machiavelli, we're going to play you a clip, the clip, part of the discussion about the United States founding fathers and Machiavelli later on in the show. Make sure you check out that entire thing. However, you're watching or listening to the show today, you should be able to find the Hertel podcast on Machiavelli also. Our guest on today's program is Danielle Zanzaleri. We are thrilled to have her. This is going to be an important talk. The CHIPS Act, that was a big piece of legislation, but it kind of got steamrolled because Build Back Mansion rolled along. The Inflation Reduction Act that doesn't actually reduce inflation uh, came along right on the tail of it, and there was political motivation. So it, we didn't get to talk about the CHIPS Act as much as we probably should have. She's going to do it. She's going to break it down for us. What's good about it? What's bad about it? The underlying implications of, once again, the government putting their thumb on the scales of which companies get benefits, money, subsidies, and a corner on the market. Was there really a need to help these companies out in the way they said, or are they just the biggest, baddest companies on the block? And that's why we get into it. She's an economist. Uh, she teaches economics at the college level, but she's also worked in the private sector, one of the major financial institutions. She's also worked at the Fed. Yes, the big, bad Fed. We're going to ask her about that, too. So great perspective from our friend Danielle Zanzalari. Uh, on today's program. Uh, we'll get to her in just a minute. First, um, let's talk a little bit about violence, more specifically rhetoric about violence. This is one of those things I feel like you should have learned on the reading rug in kindergarten, you know, the circle of trust or the special place where you sit down and talk about big people thing when you're a very small child and get a grip on this. When is it okay to call for violence and when isn't it? Well, there's some times that you need a little bit of violence. If you're defending yourself or defending your family or defending somebody who can't defend themselves or defending your property. If your country gets invaded by another country, then yes, you're going to need some violence. You need to defend yourself. Get all that. There is even arguments, and we could get into this some other time, of preemptive violence to stop something worse happening later on down the road. I can buy that one. We can discuss that too. Here's where you don't do violence. 
when you get mad at a tweet, you read about a news story and you start saying, let's just go kill that person. No, that's not right. Or if you start saying, well, this is wrong, let's just go burn it to the ground. Now, I understand the rhetoric of it, but if you actually try to go burn it to the ground, then you've gone too far. I just want to kill that person. Somebody should beat them up. I'm glad that person's dead. We see that one a lot. Anytime somebody political passes off the scene, just check out your social media feeds if you don't believe me. I'm glad they're dead. Careful with that one. You're going to get your turn at death, too. I don't know if you know that or not. You might want to be a little more humble about it, even against bad people. Why am I bringing this up? Because it's increasing over and over again in our social media feeds calls for violence because it's a political season. People are getting really wrapped up on things. And there's a counter narrative and news coverage of who is being violent in their speech and who is not. Now, that's not always equitable because everybody's got their priors and their prejudices. So, of course, each side of the political spectrum and some folks in the middle, too, to be honest about it, are going to say whoever their opponent is, is getting away with murder. See, you can just slide it right in there. Nobody notices is getting away with violent rhetoric all the time. And nobody's calling them out on it. At the same time, they're doing the exact same thing. You can see how this becomes a big, vicious cycle. Now, most of these people are just doing it to mouth off. I get that. We have freedom of speech. You're allowed to say a lot of really shot, dodgy, questionable things online. But here's where your personal responsibility comes into play. There are that very small minority who are not necessarily even ideologically political. They're just nut jobs, and they latch on to ideologies on different sides of the spectrum. But they start hearing this stuff and they really do believe it. And we have seen instances in the recent news headlines and throughout human history and in American history. There's all kinds of examples of this. These nuts jobs gets a hold of these things and they really do do violence and people really do get hurt and they get killed and things get destroyed. And it makes everything even worse when it comes to our rhetoric. So before you just start doing it, and I've done it, too, so I'm guilty, too. I will try to do better on this. Let's calm down with the let's just go kill that guy or we should burn down this entire population of people who believe X, Y and Z or this political party should be driven into the ocean. Stuff like this is not helpful. It makes you feel good. It might make you feel like you're big, strong, tough to get to say stuff like that. How would you feel if it turned out that your social media post was the one that pushed one of these unstable individuals over the edge? to actually do real-life violence on something you were just spouting off on online. Personal responsibility starts with us. Think about the extremes, not just as an example of what the other side's doing, but on what could be the unintended consequences of what you're doing. More Hertel right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, I'm going to be blunt here. I'm tired of hearing about Liz Cheney. They have been talking about this nonstop since she lost her election by over 30 points last Tuesday. I get it. She's one of the few Republicans that stood up to Trump. She's on the January 6th committee. She's the scion of the Cheney family. She's Dick Cheney's daughter. I get all that. I understand why it's a media story, but I'm tired of it. Because it's pointless. There's nothing new here. There's no ground to uncover. There's nothing being done other than people avataring who Liz Cheney is. Now, the people that are praising her uh, for her stance against Trump from the left are going to turn around and completely trash her now because she's no longer going to be useful for them until they have another January 6th hearing. Then she'll be popular again. Then they'll go back to hating her because she has a long and distinguished conservative record in her congressional career. Now, here's the really silly part of how all this works. It's not changing anything. 
when we do analysis, or at least when I do, or I try to, when I sit down to talk about politics, there's how you want it to be, how you think it is, and how it really is. And the idea is you get those three things and try to get them to all line up as much as possible. The problem is, of course, we have human natures. We have limits to our knowledge. We don't know everything, especially somebody like me. I'm just sitting here reading this stuff off the internet and trying to talk to people that are knowledgeable and find things out, but we don't always get everything right. That's fine. We just say so. That's why I don't delete stuff off my Twitter feed. You know, if we get it wrong, we get it wrong. Just say you're wrong and push on. You don't lose Twitter points for it, and it's not coming out of my salary. So why do we have to go to the mat and avatar every single person like Liz Cheney, especially for folks on the left and the right who are going to flip back and forth on what they think about her? If you go back before Trump, Liz Cheney's a perfect Republican. The only thing that really changed was Trump, and then she went against her own party. So let's talk about the reality on the ground. Wyoming is one of the deepest red states in the country. This seat is completely safe. Now, if it was Liz Cheney against some hardcore progressive, this might have been a little bit different story because then people would have had to redone their calculus. But this seat was going to stay Republican if they ran a fire hydrant, which isn't too far from the truth when you dig into her opponent's record, how she was against certain things before she was formed. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter. She won handily 30-some points. This was a base who loves Donald Trump who wanted to vent their anger at somebody, and they did, and they vented it at Liz Cheney. And by the way, she's a big person. She's a grown folk. She knew exactly what she was signing up for. She knew this was probably going to be the end result. She decided to go down this path, so everybody got exactly what they wanted. Now, when you have any media stories that go outside of that narrative, they're just being conjecture. Liz Cheney knew she'd lose her seat doing this, decided it was worth it, and did it. The Republican Party because most of the people that are anti-Trump are no longer there. Let's all be honest about that. I'm going to get into that in just a second. They got what they want and got rid of Liz Cheney. And everybody else wishing the Republican Party was different or wishing Liz Cheney was different or wishing Donald Trump was different. You can do that, but I would suggest you limit how much time you spend on that because that ain't going to change anything. As far as the Republican Party goes from Punchbowl News, this is a very interesting point. Um, following Cheney's defeat, it's instructive to look. I'm reading from Punchbowl here how the other nine House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump have fared. Now, we've been talking about the Trump vendetta rod. Here's the scoreboard. Kinzinger retiring, Upton retiring, Tom Rice, South Carolina, lost his GOP primary, Dan Newhouse, Republican in Washington. He advanced, but they have the two top two systems. So that's a little different. There wasn't a primary. Jamie Herrera Butler, Republican in Washington, lost in a primary. Anthony Gonzalez didn't run, retiring. He would have lost. Uh, Peter Mayer up in Michigan lost in his primary. Valadeo, sorry, excuse me, advanced to the general election out in California, but that's a top two as well. John Katko in New York is retiring, and Valadeo may not win. He's got a tough opponent. So if he loses, you're only going to have one member of the House Republican caucus who voted to impeach Donald Trump remain. And you're going to have it that way because that's how the Republican Party wants it. Now, we should judge the Republican Party on how they've done that. We should judge them on how they've latched themselves onto Donald Trump, good, bad, or indifferent. Don't pretend like that isn't the situation on the ground. And it looks to be like it's going to be the continued situation. Look at the results and the reaction to the Mar-a-Lago search warrant that we covered last week. Everybody came out in support. A lot of people, including next big thing, Ron DeSantis, allegedly came out and supported Trump. And there's no way to support Trump where you don't look like you're subservient to Donald Trump. So for the near future, until something weird happens, the Republican Party is still the party of Donald Trump. And everybody, me, you, the media, everybody else, should never pretend like it's otherwise. It's just the way it is. And we need to deal with reality. So wishing, hoping, coulda, shoulda, woulda when it comes to people like Liz Cheney is not worth a whole lot of extra time. It's especially not worth an entire week of media coverage and hand-wringing, especially when if she wasn't going after Donald Trump, they would be trashing her for the exact same reasons of the things that she did before Trump and will probably do after Trump. People that jump back and forth for the moment, for the things going on right now, without full context, let's waste a little less time on that. For God's sakes, can we please quit talking about Liz Cheney? There's plenty of other people in the world. She's going to lose her seat. She's going to do a January 6th hearing. She's probably going to run for president because she doesn't have anything else to do, and she will get probably 0.1% of the vote or less. It'll work itself out. Quit worrying about it. And let's talk about something that matters. More Hertel right after this.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we got to talk about this CHIP Act. You've heard about it. You've seen it. You've seen the acronym. We all know that legislation named something doesn't mean that's what's in the legislation. So we're going to dig into it, turn the noise down on it. We're going to go to Danielle Zanzalari, another one of our great Young Voices contributors. She's an economist and academic up in Seton Hall. Uh, she's based out of New Jersey. Used to be at the Fed, but we're not going to hold her against her for the purposes of this conversation. How are you, my friend? Glad to have you on the program. I'm doing well. How are you this Monday? Fantastic. Love Mondays. Uh, let's just start with the nomenclature. Let's get everybody on the same page. Like we said, legislation is coming fast and furious right now. So people may have a hard time catching up with what is what. What is the CHIP Act? What was it supposed to do? And what did the text of the bill actually wind up doing in a nutshell before we start digging into this thing? So as you mentioned, um, the acts aren't always exactly what they're designed to be or said to be. CHIP stand for semiconductors, but uh, more specifically, creating helpful incentives to produce semiconductors for America Act. It provides free money, $52 billion worth of subsidies and tax credits for semiconductor firms to expand their business in the United States, uh, specifically the manufacturing business. But the problem is most of these firms that are going to be receiving this money already started expanding in the United States in 2020 and 2021. In fact, Intel actually had a plant that they were um, breaking ground on and starting in Ohio, but stopped and claimed that they didn't have enough money to finish this unless Congress gave them money. That's not because they actually don't have the money to finish this, but they actually um, could kind of smell that you know Congress was willing to give out some free money. So this was kind of a lobbying chip. So big companies like Intel, Texas Instruments, and um, other large companies that are already investing in the U.S. are going to be the primary beneficiaries of this money. Yeah, and we need to talk about, because one of our core principles on this program is things don't happen in a vacuum, they happen in a sequence. So we need to discuss why Intel's pushing this sort of thing and other chip makers. We know what's going on in the world. We saw what happened in Taiwan. We know the mess with China. They kind of have a big hand in this. So yes, the argument is let's get this back on shore. The other part of that is, there's already regulation on who can and can't make chips because it can't go to China because the way we stack this stuff. So all that's going on in the background here, and that's driving the push here of, well, we want domestic chip production, but that also means these companies like Intel, look, this ain't like a mom and pop shop during COVID that needs a handout, right? They're seeing an opportunity going like, oh, well, we need to do this, so let's make sure all that money funnels to us. There's multiple streams going on here at once, isn't there? Yes, there's kind of two arguments here, or economic arguments that um, they were essentially making. The first one being an infant industry argument saying, hey, we're too small to compete with China. We need some help to bring manufacturing here. That is absolutely a lie. Intel is the biggest chip maker in the world. They make about $20 billion a year in profit, which is equivalent to the GDP of some small countries like Jamaica. So, I mean, you have 
this really large corporation saying, I can't compete with China, even though they are 64% bigger than China's largest semiconductor firm. Um, so that's kind of a bold-faced lie. And the second argument that a lot of chip makers were making um, is the security argument. What if China stops you know, providing their, their chips to uh, our firms here, our technological firms that need a chip? You know, everything nowadays needs a chip in it, whether it's cars or computers. So if China stops working with us, how can life go on? That's kind of the argument they were making to lobbyers, um, excuse me, lobbyers were making to Congress. And um, it was kind of a scare tactic because the truth is the we were already manufacturing chips in the U.S. and there's already the private incentives that exist to manufacture these chips here because, as mentioned, we need them for everything. So we already were bringing these uh, chip-making manufacturing um, abilities onshore. What's the ratio to scaremongering to issue? Because one thing, and the and the legitimate argument they do have is, China's not a fair competitor. We know they don't practice fairly. We know they don't do free trade. We know they cheat. We know intellectual property stuff. We also know China has you know 750 million people as a workforce pretty much under the thumb of the government. So they're not wrong about that part of it. But these are American companies. And like you said, they have incentives here. Kind of give us a ratio here because, yes, China's a problem. But that doesn't mean we need to change everything here just for that one thing for these companies, right? Right. There's kind of two facets here. Regardless of whether this was passed or not, we don't um, make enough silicone in the U.S. It's not a raw material that just happens to be here. A lot of that raw material is concentrated in East Asia. Um, so China does happen to be uh, a main uh Taker from taker from the ground. I'm, I'm missing the word here of silicone as well as Russia. China, uh, excuse me, the U.S. can actually get some silicone from our land, but not much. So we still depend on China regardless for this. So we need the base good of silicone. Um, but another fact here, which uh, you know, you seem to indicate, like how much fear mongering is going on. Well, with this act, the new projections are that the U.S. will be the number one chip manufacturer in the world in the next five to 10 years. So it wasn't like, you know, the funny argument, it's not like this bill all of a sudden made, made us number one. We already were laying the groundworks to be really competitive with China because there's already private interest to go ahead and invest in manufacturing in the U.S. Um, this is just kind of boosting that for those already big companies. Yeah, Danielle Zanzalari joining us. Okay, but we know this from history. When we do a big bill like this with a big government intervention, we're putting, you know, even the proponents of it are like, yeah, we're the government's putting their thumb on the scale here. Down the road, is this going to cause a new set of problems, not just solving the ones they purport to fix? Because this is a lot of money going to a very small funnel of companies. Yeah, you're exactly bringing up my main concerns as an economist, that too much power is still being concentrated in just a few companies. What would have been better is giving money, if they want to give money to this industry, to truly infant industries, up and coming competitors, startups that you know can co go ahead and compete with Texas Instruments and Intel and um, my um, other micro chip companies because the more competition there are uh, the lower the prices are to consumers and to you know to whatever product these chips are going into yeah now this let's let's go a little big picture here let's zoom out for a second and we'll come back this is a bigger argument in the whole tech sector right now like we know microsoft started in a garage we knew amazon started in a garage we've heard those stories you're not making semiconductor chips on this level in your garage this isn't something that's going to be an emerging industry but you keep talking about an infant industry are they really that concerned about competition or a new model or whatever the next big thing is when you're talking infant industries? If the big companies are worried about infant industries and one hand claiming to be one, on the other hand, making sure they don't create any more of them, that's an economic problem on a bigger scale, isn't it? And we see a lot of that in tech right now. You know, Facebook does that with competitors. There's a lot of other examples. Why is that a big deal to an economist when you start talking about the long term health of the economy in a sector like this? Yeah, great points and great question. Um, one thing is that these uh, companies like Intel and Texas Instruments are not actually saying they are infant industries because I think even the media would laugh at them. But that is actually the argument that they're making, that they need this help from the United States government in order to kind of run with China, kind of like an infant. You need to kind of assist them before they can go off and, 
and run on their own. Um, so this is an argument they like to make, but then they also kind of like to crush the actual true infant industries by getting this $52 billion in subsidies that are going to be primarily uh, for companies that already exist. These companies are going to be getting bigger, which makes it harder for the small company to come in and actually compete um, and have any sort of market power in negotiating contracts and getting workers and actually starting up. So as you mentioned, like tech, these big companies get bigger and it's much harder for small entrants to kind of come in. Let's talk on a personal level real quick, because, you you know, you do economics, you understand we get into theory and we get into really big numbers and people start, you know, their eyes roll in the back of their head. You already talked about this. So let's let's bring it back up. Intel was building a plan in Ohio and then stopped because of part of this. This is how much of this is them doing it and how much of it was a tactic. 100% tactic. I mean, I can't say, you know, for certainty, but let's be honest, Intel made $20 billion last year. And I mean, that's, that's profit. That's not a, that's not market cap, right? So they are huge. They have money to build a manufacturing firm. They have cash on hand. They can get debt services to build a manufacturing plant and they already had those in place. So stopping their uh, building was completely a tactic to scare politicians. And I mean, why wouldn't politicians kind of want to play ball? Intel has a major uh, lobbyer, the Semiconductor Industry Association, which is quite large, lobbying on their behalf. I mean, look, when this CHIPS Act was passed this past week, who was sitting right next to President Biden um, on the announcement of this? The CEOs of all the largest companies. Why? Because, of course, they're delivering a huge win to shareholders that, hey, they got billions of free dollars to do what they were already doing anyway. Yeah. And I think maybe the comparison for folks that maybe aren't on the economic or the high tech side, this is what we see with sports stadiums. And this is what we see with sports teams. Mm -hmm. And the argument they made is, well, we're going to have a we're going to have a resurgence in the heartland of tech. Well, that's happening already. Pittsburgh's having that. The Lehigh Valley, you know, outside of Philadelphia, they're getting that, you know, old steel towns and they're getting those high tech things. That's happening anyway. Is there really a need for the government to jump in and push this, something that's already happening organic? I know powers that be are going to want to steer it. Look, I'm a West Virginian. I'm old enough to remember Robert C. Byrd. I got to drive by 30 things with his name, wanted to go home. I get it. You know, power's trying to funnel the money. But economically and in the long run, is this healthy? Absolutely not. I mean, uh, economists like to talk about opportunity costs, but what else could that $52 billion or tax credits go to? I mean, um, education has been a huge topic in every state, especially over the last few years. $52 billion could give each state um, a, a little over a billion dollars. For some states, like my home state, that's 10% of New Jersey's budget. Even in a state as big as Texas, that's 5%. You could increase Homeland Security by 15%, which we know is kind of busting at the seams, or fit, fix roads. Um, in states and actually just directly give money to states, not for, you know, interstate highway and that sort of commerce, but actual state roads. This money could have been used for so many more practical uh, things that that this is really just a push for uh, large companies to get a handout. And I believe Bernie Sanders um, said this and he called it croning capitalism and you know, it's not often that I always agree with Bernie Sanders, but he's absolutely right here. It's large companies getting a handout that they did not need, uh, but that Congress was willing to to lend out. Yeah, talking to Danielle Zanzalari, we're going to continue to talk about this. We're going to dig into this just a little bit more, talk about the economy in general. Also, uh, when Hertel returns right after this short break, Danielle Zanzalari joining us right after this. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. Danielle Zanzalari joining us. Uh, she's from Seton Hall. She does economics. She does all kinds of smart things. She wrote this piece about the CHIP Act. Listen, we do what we always do. We link to it in the show notes. Read the whole thing for yourself, including the links that she put in there. Make sure you make up your own mind on this topic. Let, let's talk about one thing we were just discussing in a little bit more detail. The Intel CEO, when they pass this bill, first thing this guy says 
is, oh, now we can spend money on building this factory in Ohio. We just talked about it. We are, uh, I'm going to read him the quote here. Um, we are thrilled to see the funding for the CHIPS Act. Intel is committed to restoring end-to-end -end leadership, innovation, and manufacturing here in the U.S. We are doing our part, and the federal government has now done their part. What in the world is end-to-end -end leadership, innovation, and manufacturing? Is he, is he just blatantly saying we would like to have a monopoly on this section? sector of industry because that i found that quote just absolutely mind-boggling it's like dude you're saying the quiet part out loud here i also could call it like word vomit right they're just using these buzzwords to kind of appeal to the media and people that don't you know don't quite understand uh, most economists were not happy with this particular act but of course you see media cheering like yes right we know we can't get you know adequate chips in our cars cars have downgraded the um amount of equipment and then you know all these cars are now high tech but over the last two years due to the chip shortage uh some of these high-end tech features are not there and so consumers are seeing this oh as a wind we can get these sorts of things back but um they're also taxpayers too and from a taxpayer standpoint this is a complete waste of money actually talk about the money because it's not fair to bash it unless we actually break it down uh this particular piece of legislation of that billions that are going to Ohio specifically, 39 billion is for the manufacturing incentives. Okay, you know, infrastructure, get that. 2 billion for legacy chips used in automobiles and defense system. You already talked about that. We'll get to that in just a second. 13 billion in research and development and workforce development. That's a great government word for a slush fund. And 500 million to provide for international information communications, technology, security, and semiconductor supply chain activities. Uh, I'm a supply chain and transportation guy by trade. That's also going to be a slush fund. Am I wrong here? No. <laughs> that last one had more words than what's probably going to be done in that whole $500 million. <laughs> probably. Now, I get it when, you know, I know we have to do missions, like we talked about before, you know, you got to deal with Taiwan, you got to deal with China. That means, you know, local officials go over there and glad. I get all that. But this is what always happens with these kind of pieces of legislation is, yes, there's stuff that goes in there, and then you get the bloat, and you got to work through the bloat. The problem here is when the bloats are directed not at just, you know, states or communities or municipalities, that's one thing. That's bad enough. This is directed at what you just said, one of the largest companies in the world. Shouldn't that bother people just on a basic level? Well, yeah, absolutely. And the thing about this is, is, you know, anybody can go look up how the size of Intel. I think it took me two minutes to prepare this piece to know the size. And I know that Intel's a very, very big company, but I don't know their net profit off the top of my head. $20 billion per year of net profit, as mentioned, is as big as many small countries in the world. They are not small. They do not need money. And like, as your quotes, as the CEO that you just quoted from Intel said, hey, we're going to restore leadership and be kind of ahead again. I have no idea what that means. They are leading. They are the biggest chip manufacturer in the world. They are bigger than China's biggest manufacturer. They are number one. So they don't need to restore or get there. They are already there. And they already were moving uh, manufacturing back to the U.S. So this is just a complete power grab. Now, to be fair here, let's let's go back for a second because we understand China again. They're not a fair player; they do not deal fairly with us. Talk about it for just a second because underneath a lot of the economic stuff, the last few years, it's kind of gotten lost. It poked up in the headlines once or twice. The chip shortage is a real thing, especially in the automotive industry. We saw it also things like home appliances, like washers and dryers that now need chips, things like that. This was a real problem the last two years, and it was one of those things that COVID kind of really ripped a scab off of something that was already a little bit of a wound, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of that focuses not just on the manufacturing part that was shut down, um, and that was shut down right in China um, and other parts of the world, but it was also about the ac getting actual silicone out of the ground. And that we cannot change with this bill. As mentioned, silicone is not is not mainly found in the United States. It's found um, in East Asia. And so we have to work with those partners regardless of where we manufacture. And that, that fact's not going to change. You talked about uh, Senator Sanders, which everybody has an opinion on Bernie at this point. <laughs> is there bipartisanship anywhere in this other than the fact that they shoved it through? Is it just all, well, this is a great way to funnel money? I, I get the feeling sometimes, especially on the Senate side of things, where sometimes they just let things go because they know, well, well, my constituency might be up next, right? 
So yeah, this one went to Ohio, but the next one may go to my constituency. Is there an element to that when you're an economist and you start looking at this legislation of even the merits of just one-on-one, they're just kind of slow to want to stop something that they may be the next person up at the trough at, or is that too harsh? I mean, that might be true, but this act was very bipartisan, 64-34 in the Senate, 243 to 187. So you even had 24 Republicans vote for this in the House. It's not just um, a majority bill that was passed through. Having 64 senators vote for anything nowadays is is quite high. You're almost getting veto-proof power there. Um, and I mean, that's 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 pretty high. So I don't know if this is just uh, this is going to annoy uh, constituents enough to to not vote for them. But I think that um, many of these politicians are, are probably in cahoots with some of these uh, these chip companies and, and have some vested interest in them. Yeah. Okay. Grown folk talk time. Besides the crony capitalism part of this, how much of this is just good old fashioned uh, be scared of China? Again, bad actor, horrible human rights abuses. They are an adversary at best, an enemy at worst on the global stage at the same time. Are they getting waved around a lot to get some policy passed here? Is that a big factor here? No, you hit the nail on the head. Exactly. I think that's why a lot of Republicans did end up voting for this bill, because they do want to be competitive with China. And as you mentioned, and I probably haven't said this at all yet, uh, China is not a fair actor when it comes to any economic policy. Um, and that that's true. And the, the need to actually manufacture in the U.S. is, is real and there. The only difference is that I don't think the government needed to assist in companies moving manufacturing over here. The incentives already exist. Why only manufacture in China when they can shut down on a whim and you can't do anything about it? Why only manufacture in China when they can take over your business or do something uh, that is very anti-competitive at a moment's notice? It doesn't make sense, which is why these American companies were already shifting operations to Europe and the United States. They do not need any government incentives to do that. They were already doing that from a private perspective. Danielle Zanzalari joining us. Okay, what's going to be the next step in this? They passed this bill, but this is a manufacturing infrastructure. It's going to be years before this thing puts out a single microchip or semiconductor. What's going to be the next argument on this front of argument? Because the chip shortage is still real. It's not getting any better. China's not getting any quieter. Taiwan's not getting any less you know, messy. What's going to be the next step here? Because this isn't going to be the end of this, isn't it? No, what I'd like to see as an economist would be to cut some of the regulation here so there can be more competition with new firms entering the semiconductor space. So as mentioned, cars very much need chips. I'd like to see some vertical integration with, you know, large car companies like Ford, Toyota, GM, actually going out and owning semiconductor firms and actually investing in those firms because they need them for their final product. Uh, but existing rules on vertical integration between uh, companies exist. And it would be nice if those could be lessened. They don't cost anything from a government perspective, from a taxpayer dollar perspective, but they can absolutely lead to more competition in the industry, driving down prices and increasing quantity. What's the economic impact of this sort of thing? Because chips are going to get more and more important. It's not like they're going to, you know, we're not going to de-technologically involve anytime soon, although some people will probably want us to. What's the economic impact of not having coherent and consistent policy when it comes to something like semiconductors and chips? Well, usually once you get a handout once, you come back looking for more, right? So uh, I think that the government's... Um, willingness to fund this industry this is not going to be the first time semiconductor firms and the lobbying organization ask for this so uh with an ever increasing importance for chips for final goods you're going to see companies going i need more i need more i need more i fully expect that all right anytime we have an economist on we got to ask him the question of the day where you at on inflation and recession um i am an economist that has always uh, taught two quarters of negative GDP growth. So I would say we are officially in a recession. Um, I do know that the definition is um, a little blurry that the MBER can call it. And I have very much respect for the MBER. But the problem with the definition, if you don't go with two quarters of negative GDP growth, is if they call recession in three months, four months, it's too late. Uh, you're calling it so beyond when the recession was that you couldn't have done anything to help it. Um, so I do think we're in a recession, um, at least from the standard definition. And I might uh, buck the trend of some of my fellow economists that like to go with 
this, but I do think we're in a recession. Um, I, do I think this is the worst recession of my lifetime? Absolutely not. Do I think this is the worst inflation of my lifetime? Uh, yes. Uh, maybe that, that tends to, to my age, but uh, it is quite high. I think a 0% month over month growth is good. I don't know if we peaked. A lot of economists say we're peaking. Um, I'd like to see inflation come down uh, as everybody would, but I think we're still going to be well over 5% for at least a year. Danielle, year over yeah. year, year over year. Yeah, gotcha. Dan, you're not going to do the 0% this month because we didn't last month. We won't get into that funness. Uh, Danielle Zanzalari. All right. I've got to ask you a question because we always talk about turning down the noise because, you know, we live in a buzzword world. You were at the Fed. So you tell me everybody online loves to bash the Fed. You know, the Fed's the great evil. Abolish the Fed, you know, so salt. So it never grows back. What's the biggest misperception you see, both as an economist and somebody that was actually there when people talk about the Fed, especially now when we're talking, you know, inflation control and things like this, which is in, you know, that's their purview. That's what they were designed to help control. They're going to be in the news a lot. What's one of the misperceptions you think people should probably get before they start smashing send on that tweet or Facebook post about the Fed? There's a lot of really, really smart economists, and there's a lot more banking professionals and non-economists running the Fed than you would think. And economists are there to advise and do research and support. But a lot of the key decision makers are not economists, and they don't have to listen to all of the advice of economists. And so I would say um, I'm pro more economists at the Fed and less other administrators. I think the Fed... Not that they don't deserve some criticism. I think they're like a lot of other things, like education, like the military, um, like the rest of the government, for that matter. There's what they do, and then there's the bureaucracy. And Absolutely. I think when you're, yeah, I think when you're discussing the Fed, it's just like the school system, it's just like the military, like everything else. Like, which one are we talking? Are we talking about the pointy end of the stick that you know defends us or teaches kids in the classroom? Or are we talking about the bureaucracy that's you know chewing it up and screwing everything up? Is that a fair way to address the Fed as well? Because really. Yeah, it's, it has a function, but it's also a giant bureaucracy like everything else. And bureaucracy almost no, almost never improves anything, right? I mean, absolutely. It's it's the bloat in the bureaucracy of the Fed. It keeps growing in size, never usually reduces. Um, like I said, there's really smart people working there. I think, you know, getting a job at the Fed, it's, it's quite hard to do, but it's not necessarily hard to retain your job at the Fed or other government institutions, which, you know, is, is common knowledge. Um, I loved working there and the colleagues, like I said, they're really, really smart and I have great relationships with um, all of them, but, uh, and it is quite good. But as an economist, um, I definitely like uh, having a little bit less bureaucracy, not just, you know, in my workplace, but um, also just in government in general as a taxpayer. Danielle Zanzalari. Uh, great stuff today. Loved having you. Until we get you back on Herd Tell again, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with what you got going on. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at dzanzalari. So it's Z-A-N-Z-A-L-A-R-I. On Twitter, happy to have a conversation with you there. Send me a DM. Um, love to keep talking to you. Yeah. She has her piece up at Center Square that we've been working off of. Passage of the CHIP Act is not economically smart. We have linked to it in the show notes. Make sure you read that entire piece in its entirety. Follow her and we'll definitely have you back. Great stuff today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, ma'am. Thank you, Andrew. Have a Thank nice you. one. Yes, ma'am. back to herd tell over the weekend our newest deep dive on the herd tell podcast has amanda griffiths we talk about machiavelli the man the myth the legend all the stuff down through the years 500 years of history on this guy and people still can't figure out what he actually wrote well she's read it in the original language and studied it and she's going to break it down from us from renaissance italy all the way through the philosophers to the founding fathers of america believe it or not right on up through pop culture like uh one of my favorite tupac albums and even to today's political theory. Great stuff on the Herdtel podcast, Machiavelli. This is a clip about the founding fathers and their influences with Machiavelli. Amanda Griffiths on Herdtel podcast. Please enjoy this clip and seek out and make sure you listen to the full thing. 
Um, let's get to the nitty gritty there of how we as Americans in the year of our Lord 2022 are still talking about Machiavelli and you've even got merchandise with Machiavelli on it. We already talked about how this got into the English speaking realm and in the English speaking academic tradition through France to England. Well, when you look at our founding fathers, what was their influences? France and England. Mm -hmm. So naturally they knew about this. You look into history, it's really interesting. Um, Franklin, Madison, Jefferson, they all have writings mentioning Machiavelli. We have kind of a strong stream here. They're, one of the balls of thread on this thing, you pulled the yarn enough, American founding fathers, they liked them some Machiavelli, both the theories of it and the mythology of it, but some of them actually read his work and treated it seriously too, didn't they? They did. And this is something about which I'm sure I'm sure you've, you've done quite a bit of reading. Um, even people like Addison and Hume, who are probably more frequently invoked in some of the Founding Fathers' writings, they're reading Machiavelli, uh, they're drawing from him. Uh, George Washington, in fact, was, was a very strategic and kind of cagey thinker and modeled some of his strategies after, um, <clears throat> after some of the mythology around, uh, was it Cincinnati? So, uh, and, and obviously Livy talks about him, Machiavelli, uh, admires a lot of the strategies that Cincinnati uses to become this mythologized figure. So yeah, um, there's quite a bit of, of Machiavelli that leaks into our own institutions. And I do say institutions, right? Uh, in the constitution that we have today, the mixed government that we have. It's not only Machiavelli who gives us this, obviously. A fellow named Polybius comes up with these mixed, mixed regimes. But in the uh, first book of the discourses in the early chapters, Machiavelli lays out a lot, you know, what looks sort of like an early bicameral type of system. And it's a little bit of a riffing on what the Romans had. Machiavelli gives us ideas for institutions, not just in the discourses, by the way, but in some of his shorter writings as well, and in some of his briefer writings, um, where he talks about having divided government, um, and where he talks about having various, he doesn't use this term specifically, but what we today would call checks and balances. Uh, and Yes, it certainly has had an influence on our founding fathers today. I would say, and this is something that I would like to go into more in my own research, um, there's, you can even derive some early market theory from a lot of what Machiavelli has to say about the, uh, you know, the pursuit of merit and the reward of excellence and uh, the, the freedom or the leaving it to a republic citizens to make experiment of their virtue and the power of fortune in private as well as public. I think that is such a great encapsulation of what liberty should look like. Um, and we get that from Machiavelli. Um, that's what Machiavelli tells us should, should happen in a republic. Um, experiments of virtue and experiments of fortune. And so, yeah, you, you get a lot of this really good stuff from him and it, it redounds into the present. tell you know we always try to end on a good note uplifting note this is a cool charity great idea this is the lagrange daily news that we're reading from here uh, the lagrange chapter of sleep and heavenly peace um, is once again participating in the nationwide charity bed campaign bunks across america national build day looking for volunteers to help build bunk beds for kids in need sleep and heavenly peace is a nonprofit organization that builds beds for children who don't have one since they start inside an Idaho garage in 2012 SLP has extended over to 200 chapters across the United States and Canada. The group not only builds bunk beds for children, but delivers and provides bedding as they strive to ensure their motto, no kid sleeps on the floor in our town. Bunks Across America is also organizing annual events where local chapters participate in national build events. All during a single day, the group, group plans to build more than 8,000 bunk beds this year. LaGrange SHP Chapter President Greg Watts said the local group hopes to build about 80 bunk beds during the event. 
has participated in all the annual builds since the event started four years ago. Monks Cross America build will be held Saturday, September 10th. There's details here for that particular local chapter, but like they said, they're all over the country. We will provide the link to this story, and you can always look them up. It's called Bunks Across America. Cool organization. They're physically building bunk beds, putting kids in beds. One of those little things you take for granted until you don't have it. Imagine kids without beds. What a difference that would make to their quality of life. They'll do it for her tell on this Monday. Glad to have you. Glad to be back in the swing of it. Got a busy week ahead. Very excited to dig into it with you with the great guests we got lined up. If you've missed anything last week or you missed our newest podcast, our deep dive on Machiavelli with Amanda Griffiths, it is outstanding. We loved it. We had a blast making it. You will learn something from it. I promise. It's great stuff. All of that, wherever you're watching or listening to the program, if you're on YouTube, we have playlists all set up for you. You can just go to the playlist and or search it on the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, however you're listening. Just look for all our different things. Of course, the daily Herd Tell program, Herd Tell podcast, those are the deep dives, Herd Tell good talks, those are the interview segments, all of that, always free. All you got to do is sign up, follow, subscribe, leave a comment and rating if you get the option to do that. Though That's important for us. That lets folks know our little programs worth checking out. If you'd share us on your social media, we'd sure appreciate it. Love to hear from you at Herd Tell Show on the Twitter, at Herd Tell Show on the gmail.com. Love to hear from you. We've done whole segments and programs based off your feedback and questions. So let's have it. So until next time, however you're watching or listening, wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll do this again tomorrow for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.